0: Hey everybody, Uh, thanks for sticking with me. This is going to be part three of The Brick Moon. If you need to be caught up, the moon, if you remember, has uh, gone up without anyone's permission. It went up accidentally and it had people inside it. So today, we might get to find out what happened to those people. Hope you enjoy it. Three. FULFILMENT Looking back upon it now, it seems inconceivable that we said as little to each other as we did of this horrible catastrophe. That night, we did not pretend to sleep. We sat in one of the deserted cabins, now talking fast, now sitting and brooding, without speaking perhaps for hours. Riding back the next day to meet the women and children, we still brooded or we discussed this if, that if, and yet others. But after we had once opened it all to them, and when we had once answered the children's horribly naive questions as best we could, we very seldom spoke to each other of it again. It was too hateful, all of it, to talk about. I went round to Tom Quorum's office one day, and told him all I knew. He saw it was dreadful to me, and, with eyes full, just squeezed my hand, And never said one word more. We lay awake nights, pondering and wondering, but hardly ever did I to Halliburton or he to me explain our respective notions as they came and went. I believe my general impression was that of which I have spoken, that they were all burned to death on the instant as the little aerolite fused in its passage through our atmosphere. I believe Halliburton's thought more often was that they were conscious of what had happened, and gasped out their lives in one or two breathless minutes, so horribly long, as they shot outside our atmosphere. But it was all too terrible for words, and that which we could not think upon in those dreadful waking nights, we scarcely whispered even to our wives. Of course I looked and he looked for the miserable thing, but we looked in vain, I returned to the few subscribers the money which I had scraped together towards whitewashing the moon, shrouding its guilty face with innocent white indeed. But we agreed to spend the wretched trifle of the other money, left in the treasury after paying the last bills, for the largest Alvin Clark telescope that we could buy. And we were fortunate in obtaining cheap, a second-hand one, which came to the hammer when the property of Shubael Academy was sold by the mortgagees. But we had, of course, scarce a hint whatever as to where the miserable object was to be found. All we could do was to carry the glass to number 9, train it there on the meridian of number 9, and take turns every night in watching the field, in the hope that this child of sorrow might drift across in its path of ruin. But, though everything else seemed to drift by from east to west, nothing came from south to north, as we expected. For a whole month of spring, another of autumn, another of summer, and another of winter, did Halliburton and his wife and Polly and I glue our eyes to that eyeglass, from the twilight of evening to the twilight of morning, and the dead hulk never hove in sight. Wherever else it was, it seemed not to be on that meridian, which was where it ought to be and was made to be. Had ever any dead mass of matter wrought such ruin to its makers and, of its own stupid inertia, so falsified all the prophecies of its birth? Oh, the total depravity of things. It was more than a year after the fatal night, if it all happened in the night, as I suppose, that, as I dreamily read through the astronomical record in the new reading room of the college library at Cambridge highlighted upon this scrap. Professor Carl Zita, of Breslau, writes to the Astromeniche Natrician to claim the discovery of a new asteroid observed by him on the night of March 31st. He proposes for the asteroid the name of Phoebe. Dr. Zita states that in the short period which he had for observing Phoebe, for an hour after midnight, her motion in right ascension seemed slight, and her motion and declination very rapid. After this, however, for months, nay, even to this moment, nothing more was heard of Dr. Zita of Breslau. But one morning, before I was up, Halliburton came banging at my door on D Street. The mood had taken him, as he returned from some private theatricals at Cambridge, to take the comfort of the new reading room at night and thus express in practice his gratitude to the overseers of the college, for keeping it open through all the twenty-four hours. Poor Halliburton, he did not sleep well on those times. Well, as he read away on the Astramanische Nashrich in itself, what should he find but this in German, which he copied for me, and then, on all foot in the rain and darkness, tramped over with to South Boston, The most enlightened head professor, Dr. Jamelin, writes to the director of the Porpole Astronomique at St. Petersburg to claim the discovery of an asteroid in a very high southern latitude of a wider inclination of the orbit, as it will be noticed, than any asteroid yet discovered. Planets apparent alpha, 21 hours, 20 minutes, 51.40 seconds. Planets apparent delta, negative 39, at 31 11.9. Comparison Star Alpha. Dr. Jamelin publishes no separate second observation, but is confident that the declination is diminishing. Dr. Jamelin suggests for the name of this extra zodiacal planet Io, as appropriate to its wanderings from the accustomed ways of planetary life, and trusts that the very distinguished Air Peters, the godfather of so many planets, We'll relinquish this name, already claimed for the asteroid 85, observed by him, September 15th, 1865. I had run downstairs almost as I was, slippers and dressing gown being the only claims I had on society. But to me, as to Halliburton, this stuff about extra-zodiacal wandering blazed out upon the page, And though there was no evidence that the most enlightened Jamelin found anything the next night, yet, if his diminishing meant anything, there was, with Zeta's observation, whoever Zeta might be, something to start upon. We rushed upon some old bound volumes of the record and spotted the enlightened Jamelin. He was chief of a college at Taganrog, where perhaps they had a spyglass. This gave us the parallax of his observation, Breslau, of course, we knew, so we could place zetas, and with these poor data, I went to work to construct, if I could, an orbit for this Io-Phoebe mass of brick-and-mortar. Halliburton, not strong in spherical trigonometry, looked out logarithms for me till breakfast, and, as soon as it would do, went over to Mrs. Bodewin to borrow her telescope, ours being left at number nine. Mrs. Bodewin was kind as she always was, and at noon Halliburton appeared in triumph with the boxes on P. Nolan's job wagon. We always employ P. in memory of dear old Phil. We got the telescope rigged and waited for night, only, alas, to be disappointed again. Io had wandered somewhere else, and, with all our sweeping back and forth on the tentative curve I had laid out, Io would not appear. We spent that night in vain, but we were not going to give it up so. Phoebe might have gone round the world twice before she became Io. Might have gone three times, four, five, six, nay, six hundred. Who knew? Nay, who knew how far off Phoebe Io was or Io Phoebe? We sent over for Annie, and she and Polly and George and I went to work again. We calculated in the next week. 67 orbits on the supposition of so many different distances from our surface. I laid out on paper, which we stuck up on the wall opposite, the formula, and then one woman and one man attacked each set of elements, each having the logarithmic tables, and so, in a week's working time, the 67 orbits were completed. 77 possible places for I.O. Phoebe to be in on the forthcoming Friday evening. Of these 67, 41 were observable above our horizon that night. She was not in one of the 41, nor near it. But despair, if Gyoto be correct, is the chief of sins. So has he depicted her in the fresco of the arena in Padua. No sin that of ours. After searching all that Friday night, we slept all Saturday, Sleeping after weeping. We all came to the chapel Sunday, kept awake there, and taught our Sunday classes special lessons on perseverance. On Monday we began again, and that week we calculated sixty seven more orbits. I am sure I do not know why we stopped at sixty seven. All of these were on the supposition that the revolution of the brick moon, or Io Phoebe, was so fast that it would require either fifteen days to complete its orbit or 16, or 17 days, and so on up to 81 days. And with these orbits, on the next Friday, we waited for the darkness. As we sat at tea, I asked if I should begin observing at the smallest or the largest orbit, and there was a great clamor of diverse opinions. But little Bertha said, Begin in the middle. And what is the middle? said George, chafing the little girl. But she was not to be dismayed. She had been in and out all week, and knew that the first orbit was of 15 days and the last of 81, and with true Lincoln School precision, she said, The mean of the smallest orbit and the largest orbit is 48 days. Amen, said I, and we all laughed. On 48 days we will begin. Alice ran to the sheets, turned up that number, and read, Write Ascension 27 at 11. SOUTH DECLINATION 34 AT 49 Convenient place, said George. Good omen, Bertha, my darling. If we find her there, Alice and Bertha and Clara shall all have new dolls. It was the first word of pleasantry that had been spoken about the horrid thing since Spoonwood Hill. Night came at last. We trained the glass on the faded spot. I bade Polly take the eyeglass. She did so shook her head uneasily, screwed the tube northward herself a moment, and then screamed, It is there! It is there! A clear disk! Gibbous shape! And very sharp on the upper edge! Look! Look! As big again as Jupiter! Polly was right. The brick moon was found. Now we had found it, we never lost it. Zeta and Jamelin, I suppose, had had foggy nights and stormy weather often. But we had someone at the eyeglass all that night, and before morning had very respectable elements, good measurements of angular distance when we got one, from another star in the field of our lowest power. For we could see her even with the good French opera glass I had, and with the night glass which I used to carry on the South Atlantic station. It certainly was an extraordinary illustration of Orkut's engineering ability, that, flying off as she did, without leave or license, she should have gained so nearly the orbit of our original plan, 9,000 miles from the Earth's center, 5,000 from the surface. He had always stuck to the hope of this, and on his very last tests of the flies, he had said they were almost up to it. But for this accuracy of his, I can hardly suppose we should have found her to this hour, since she failed, by what cause I then did not know, to take her intended place on the meridian of number 9. At 5,000 miles, the moon appeared as large as the largest satellite of Jupiter appears. And Polly was right in that first observation when she said she got a good disk with that admirable glass of Mrs. Bowden. The orbit was not on the meridian of number 9, nor did it remain on any meridian, but it was very nearly south and north an enormous motion and declination, with a very slight retrograde motion in right ascension. At five thousand miles, the moon showed as large as a circle two miles and a third in diameter would have shown an old thornbush, as we called her older sister. We longed for an eclipse of Thornbush by BM, but no such lucky chance is on the cards any place accessible to us for many years. Of course, with a moon so near us, the terrestrial parallax is enormous. Now, you know, dear reader, that the gigantic reflector of Lord Rosé and the exquisite 15-inch refractors of the modern observatories eliminate from the chaotic rubbish heap of the surface of Old Thornbush much smaller objects than such a circle as I have named. If you have read Mr. Locke's amusing moon hoax as often as I have, you have those details fresh in your memory. As John Farrar taught us when all this began, and as I have said already, if there were a state house in Thornbush 200 feet long, the first Herschel would have seen it. His magnifying power was 6,450. That would have brought this deaf and dumb state house within some 40 miles. Go up on Mount Washington and see white sails 80 miles away. beyond Portland with your naked eye and you will find how well he would have seen that state house with his reflector. Lord Rosé's statement is that with his reflector, he can see objects on old Thornbush, 252 feet long. If he can do that, he can see on RBM objects which are 5 feet long. And, of course, we were beside ourselves to get control of some instrument which had some approach to such power. Halliburton was for at once building a reflector at number nine. And perhaps he will do it yet, for Halliburton has been successful in his paper making and lumbering. But I went to work more promptly. I remembered, not an apothecary, but an observatory, which had been dormant, as we say of volcanoes, now for ten or a dozen years, no matter why. The trustees had quarreled with the director, or the funds had given out, or the director had been shot at the head of his division. One of those accidents had happened, which will happen even in observatories which have 15-inch equatorials. And so the equatorial here had been left as useless as a cannon whose metal had been stained or its reputation stained in an experiment. The observatory at Tamworth, dedicated with such enthusiasm, another lighthouse in the skies, had been, so long as I have said, worthless to the world. In the neighborhood of the observatory, I took lodgings. To the church where worshiped the family which lived in the observatory buildings, I repaired. After two Sundays, I established acquaintance with John Donald, the head of this family. On the evening of the 3rd, I made acquaintance with his wife in a visit to them. Before three Sundays more, he had recommended me to the surviving trustees as his successor as janitor to the buildings. He himself had accepted the promotion and gone with his household to keep a store for Halliburton in North Ovid. I sent for Polly and the children to establish them in the janitor's rooms, and, after writing to her, with trembling eye, I waited for the brick moon to pass over the field of the 15-inch equatorial. Night came. I was soul alone. BM came, more than filled the field of vision, of course. But for that, I was ready. Heavens, how changed. Red no longer, but green as a meadow in the spring. Still, I could see black on the green. The large 20-foot circles, which I had remembered so well, which broke the concave of the dome. And on the upper edge, were these palm trees? They were. No, they were hemlocks by their shape. And among them were moving to and fro. Flies? Of course not. I cannot see flies. But something is moving. Coming, going. One, two, three, ten. There are more than thirty in all. There are men and women and their children. Could it be possible? It was possible. Orkut and Brannan and the rest of them had survived that giddy flight through the ether and were going and coming on the surface of their own little world, bound to it by its own attraction and living by its own laws. As I watched, I saw one of them leap from that surface. He passed wholly out of my field of vision, but in a minute, more or less, returned. Why not? Of course the attraction of this world must be very small while he retained the same power of muscle he had when he was here. They must be horribly crowded, I thought. No, they had three acres of surface, and there were but 37 of them. Not so much crowded as people are in Roxbury. Not nearly so much as in Boston. And besides, these people are living underground, and have the whole of their surface for their exercise. I watched their every movement as they approached the edge and as they left it. Often they passed beyond it, so that I could see them no more. Often they sheltered themselves from that tropical sun beneath the trees. Think of living on a world where from the vertical heat of the hottest noon of the equator to the twilight of the poles is a walk of only 50 paces. What atmosphere they had to temper and diffuse those rays, I could not then conjecture. I knew that at half past ten... They would pass into the inevitable eclipse, which struck them every night at this period of their orbit, and must, I thought, be a luxury to them, as recalling old memories of night when they were on this world. As they approached the line of shadow, some fifteen minutes before it was due, I counted on the edge thirty-seven specks arranged, evidently in order, and, at one moment, as by one signal, all thirty-seven jumped into the air, high jumps. Again they did it, and again. Then a low jump, then a high one. I caught the idea in a moment. They were telegraphing to our world, in the hope of an observer. Long leaps and short leaps, the long and short of Morse's telegraph alphabet, were communicating ideas. My paper and pencil had been, of course, before me. I jotted down the despatch, whose language I knew perfectly. Show I understand. On the sawmill flat. Show I understand on the sawmill flat. Show I understand on the sawmill flat. By I understand, they meant the responsive signal given, in all telegraphy, by an operator who has received and understood a message. As soon as this exercise had been three times repeated, they proceeded in a solid body, much the most apparent object I had had until now to circle number three, and then evidently descended into the moon. The eclipse soon began, but I knew the moon's path now, and followed the dusky, coppery spot without difficulty. At one thirty-three, it emerged, and in a very few moments, I saw the solid column pass from circle number three again, deploy on the edge again, and repeat three times the signal. Show I understand on the sawmill flat. Show I understand on the sawmill flat. Show I understand on the sawmill flat. It was clear that Orkut had known that the edge of his little world would be the most easy of observation, and that he had guessed that the moments of obscuration and of immersion were the moments when observers would be most careful. After this signal, they broke up again, and I could not follow them with daylight. I sent off a despatch to Halliburton, and, grateful and happy in comparison, sank into the first sleep not haunted by horrid dreams, which I had known for years. Halliburton knew that George Orkut had taken with him a good Dollond's refractor, which he had bought in London, of a two-inch glass. He knew that this would give Orkut a very considerable power, if he could only adjust it accurately enough to find number nine in the third range. Orca had chosen well in selecting the sawmill flat, a large meadow easily distinguished by the peculiar shape of the mill pond which we had made. Eager though Halliburton was to join me, he loyally took two monies, caught the first train to Skowhagen, and traveling thence, in 36 hours more, was again descending Spoonwood Hill for the first time since our futile observations. The snow lay white upon the flat. With Rob Shea's help, He rapidly unrolled a piece of black cambric 20 yards long and pinned it to the crust upon the snow, another by its side and another. Much cambric had he left. They had carried down with them enough for the funerals of two presidents. Halliburton showed the symbols for I understand, but he could not resist also displaying dot dot dash dot dash, which are the dots and lines to represent okay which he says is the shortest message of comfort. And not having exhausted the space on the flat, he and Robert, before night closed in, made a gigantic OK, 15 yards from top to bottom, and in marks that were 15 feet through. I had telegraphed my great news to Halliburton on Monday night. Tuesday night, he was at Skowhagen. Thursday night, he was at number nine. Friday, he and Rob stretched their cambric. Meanwhile, every day I slept, every night I was glued to the eyepiece. Fifteen minutes before the eclipse, every night, this weird dance of leaps 200 feet high, followed by hops of 20 feet high, mingled always in the steady order I have described, spelt out the ghastly message, show I understand, on the sawmill flat. And every morning, as the eclipse ended, I saw the column creep along to the horizon, and again, as the duty of opening day, spell out the same, show I understand, on the sawmill flat. They had done this twice and every 24 hours for nearly two years. For three nights steadily, I read these signals twice each night, only these, and nothing more. But Friday night all was changed. After attention That dreadful show did not come, but this cheerful signal. Hurrah, all well, air, food, and friends. What more can man require? Hurrah. How like George, how like Ben Brannan, how like George's wife, how like them all. And they were all well, yet poor I could not answer. Nay, I could only guess what Halliburton had done. But I have never, I believe been so grateful since I was born. After a pause, the united line of leapers resumed their jumps and hops. Long and short spelled out, your OK is twice as large as it needs to be. Of the meaning of this, lonely I had, of course, no idea. I have a power of 700, George continued. How did he get that? He has never told us. But this I can see that all our analogies deceive us. Of views of the sea from Mount Washington, or of the Boston State House from Wachusett. For in these views we looked through 40 or 80 miles of dense terrestrial atmosphere. But Orkut was looking nearly vertically through an atmosphere which was, most of it, rare indeed, and pure indeed, compared with its lowest stratum. In the record book of my observations, these despatches are entered as 12 and 13. Of course, it was impossible for me to reply. All I could do was to telegraph these in the morning to Skowhagen, sending them to the care of the Moors that they might forward them. But the next night showed that this had not been necessary. Friday night, George and the others went on for a quarter of an hour. Then they would rest, saying 2, 3, or whatever their next signal time would be. Before morning, I had these despatches. 14. Write to all hands that we are doing well. Langdon's baby is named Io, and Leonard's is named Phoebe. How queer that was! What a coincidence! And they had some humor there. 15 was, Our atmosphere stuck to us. It weighs three-tenths of an inch. Our weight. 16. Our rainfall is regular as the clock. We have made a cistern of Kilpatrick. This meant the spherical chamber of that name. 17. Write to Darwin that he is all right. We began with lichens and have come as far as palms and hemlocks. These were the first night's messages. I had scarcely covered the eyeglasses and adjusted the equatorial for the day when the bell announced the carriage in which Polly and the children came from the station to relieve me in my solitary service as janitor. I had the joy of showing her the good news. This night's work seemed to fill our cup. For all the day before, when I was awake, I had been haunted by the fear of famine for them. True, I knew that they had stored away in chambers H, I, and J, the pork and the flour which we had sent up for the workmen through the summer, and the corn and oats for the horses. But this could not last forever. Now, however, that it proved that in a tropical climate they were forming their own soil, developing their own palms, and eventually even their breadfruit and bananas, planting their own oats and maize, and developing rice, wheat, and all other cereals, harvesting these six, eight, or ten times, for aught, I could see, In one of our years, why then, there was no danger of famine for them. If, as I thought, they carried up with them heavy drifts of ice and snow in the two chambers which were not covered in when they started, why, they had waters in their firmament quite sufficient for all purposes of thirst and of ablution. And what I had seen of their exercise showed that they were in the strength sufficient for the proper development of their little world. Polly had the messages by heart before an hour was over, and the little girls, of course, knew them sooner than she. Halliburton, meanwhile, had brought out the shoebell refractor, Alvin Clark, and by night of Friday was in readiness to see what he could see. shoebell, of course, gave him no such luxury of detail as did my 15-inch equatorial, but still he had no difficulty in making out groves of hemlock and of the circular openings, and although he could not make out my thirty-seven flies, still, when ten-fifteen came, he saw distinctly the black square crossing from hole Mary to the edge and beginning its dervish dances. They were on his edge more precisely than on mine, for Orcott knew nothing of Tamworth and had thought his best chance was to display for number nine. So was it that, at that same moment with me, Halliburton was also spelling out Orkut and Co.'s joyous hurrah. "'Stefan,' lisps Celia, promise that you will look at yon moon, old thornbush, "'at the instant I do. "'So was it with me and Halliburton.'" He was, of course, informed, long before the Moor's messenger came, that, in Orkut's judgment, twenty feet of length were sufficient for his signals. Orkut's atmosphere, of course must be exquisitely clear. So, on Saturday, Rob and Halliburton pulled up all their cambric and arranged it on the flat again in letters of 20 feet in this legend. Ra, al, well. Halliburton said he could not waste flat or cambric on spelling. He had had all night since half past ten to consider what next was most important for them to know. And a very difficult question it was, you will observe. They had been gone nearly two years, and much had happened. Which thing was, on the whole, the most interesting and important? He had said we were all well. What then? Did you ever find yourself in the same difficulty? When your husband had come home from sea and kissed you and the children and wondered at their size? Did you ever sit silent and have to think what you should say? Were you never fairly relieved when little Phil said, blustering, I got three eggs today? The truth is, that silence is very satisfactory intercourse, if we only know all is well. When De got his original cable going, he had not much to tell after all. Only that consoles were a quarter percent higher than they were the day before. Send me news, Lisp T. Poor lonely myth from Bulls Bay to Valentia. Send me news. They are mad for news. But how be if there be no news worth sending? What do I read in my cable despatch today? Only that Harvard crew polled at Putney yesterday, which I knew before I opened the paper, and that there had been a riot in Spain, which I also knew? Here is a letter just brought me by the mail from Moro, Tazewell County, Iowa. It is written by Fallensby, in a good, cheerful hand. How glad I am to hear from Fallensby! yes, but do I care one straw whether Fallensby planted spring wheat or winter wheat? Not I. All I care for is Fallensby's way of telling it. All these are remarks by which Halliburton explains the character of the messages he sent in reply to George Orkut's autographs, which were so thoroughly satisfactory. Should he say Mr. Bory had left the Navy Department and Mr. Robeson come in? Should he say the Lords had backed down on the disendowment bill? Should he say the Telegraph had been landed at Duxbury? Should he say Ingram had been removed to Tamworth? What did they care for this? What does anybody ever care for facts? Should he say that the state constable was enforcing the liquor law on whiskey but was winking at lager? All this would take him a week, in the most severe condensation. And for what good, as Halliburton asked. Yet these were the things that the newspapers told, and they told nothing else. There was a nice little poem of Gene Ingelow's in a transcript Halliburton had with him. He said he was really tempted to spell that out. It was better worth it than all the rest of the newspaper stuff, and would be remembered a thousand years after that was forgotten. What they wanted says Halliburton, was sentiment. That is all that survives and is eternal. So he and Rob laid out their cambric thus. Ra all, well, so glad. Halliburton hesitated whether he would add power 5,000 to indicate the full power I was using at Tamworth. But he determined not to, and I think wisely. The convenience was so great of receiving the signal at the spot where it could be answered, that for the present he thought it best that they should go on as they did. That night, however, to his dismay, clouds gathered and a grim snowstorm began. He got no observations, and the next day it stormed so heavily that he could not lay his signals out. For me at Tamworth, I had a heavy storm all day, but at midnight it was clear. And as soon as the regular eclipse was passed, George began with what we saw was an account of the great anaclysm which sent them there. You observe that Orkut had far greater power of communicating with us than we had with him. He knew this, and it was fortunate he had, for he had on his little world much more of interest to tell than we had on our large one. 18. It stormed hard. We were all asleep and knew nothing till morning. The hammocks turned so slowly. Here was another revelation and relief. I had always supposed that if they knew anything before they were roasted to death, they had had one wild moment of horror. Instead of this, the gentle slide of the moon had not awakened them. The flight upward had been as easy as it was rapid. The change from one center of gravity to another had of course been slow. And they had actually slept through the hole after the dancers had rested once orca continued 19. we cleared e a in two seconds i think our outer surface fused and cracked somewhat so much the better for us they moved so fast that the heat of their friction through the air could not propagate itself through the whole brick surface indeed There could have been but little friction after the first 5 or 10 miles. By EA, he means Earth's atmosphere. His 20th despatch is, I have no observation of ascent, but by theory, our positive ascent ceased in 2 minutes 5 seconds, when we fell into our proper orbit, which, as I calculate, is 5,109 miles from your mean surface. In all of this, observe, George dropped no word of regret through these 5,000 miles. His 21st despatch is, Our rotation on our axis is made once in seven hours, our axis being exactly vertical to the plane of our own orbit. But in each of your daily rotations, we get sunned all around. Of course, they never had lost their identity with us, so far as our rotation and revolution went. Our inertia was theirs. All the fatal flywheels had given them was an additional motion in space of their own. This was the last despatch before daylight of Sunday morning, and the terrible snowstorm of March sweeping our hemisphere cut off our communication with them, both at Tamworth and No. 9, for several days. But here was ample food for reflection, Our friends were in a world of their own, all 37 of them well, and it seemed they had two more little girls added to their number since they started. They had plenty of vegetables to eat, with prospect of new tropical varieties, according to Dr. Darwin. Rob Shea was sure they had carried up hens. He said he knew Mrs. Whitman had several middle sexes, and Mrs. Leonard two or three black Spanish fowls, which had been given her by some friends in Foxcroft. Even if they had not yet had time enough for these to develop into alderneys and venison, they would not be without animal food. When at last it cleared off, Halliburton had to telegraph. Repeat from 21. And this took all his cambric, though he had doubled his stock. Orchid replied the next night. 22. I can see your storms. We have none. When we want to change climate... We can walk in less than a minute from midsummer to the depth of winter. But in the inside, we have 11 different temperatures, which do not change. On the whole, there is a certain convenience in such an arrangement. With number 23, he went back to his story. It took us many days, one or two of our months, to adjust ourselves to our new condition. Our greatest grief is that we are not on the meridian. Do you know why? Loyal George, he was willing to exile himself and his race from the most of mankind, if only the great purpose of his life could be fulfilled. But his great regret was that it was not fulfilled. He was not on the meridian. I did not know why, but Halliburton, with infinite labor, spelt out on the flat. Sick project ad fin, by which he meant, See article projectiles in the cyclopedia at the end. And there indeed is the only explanation to be given. When you fire a shot, why does it ever go to the right or left of the plane in which it is projected? Dr. Hutton ascribes it to a whirling motion acquired by the bullet by friction with the gun. Euler thinks it is due chiefly to the irregularity of the shape of the ball, In our case, the B.M. was regular enough, but on one side, being wholly unprepared for flight, she was heavily stored with pork and corn, while her other chambers had in some of them heavy drifts of snow, and some only a few men and women and hens. Before Orcutt saw Halliburton's advice, he had sent us 24 and 25. 24. We have established a Sandemanian church, and Brannan preaches. My son Edward and Alice Whitman are to be married this evening. This despatch unfortunately did not reach Halliburton, though I got it. So all the happy pair received for our wedding present was the advice to look in the cyclopedia at article Projectiles near the end. 25 was We shall act. As You Like It, after the wedding. Deadhead tickets for all of the old set who will come. Actually, in one week's reunion, we had come to joking. The next night we got 26. Alice says she will not read the cyclopedia in The Honeymoon, but is much obliged to Mr. Halliburton for his advice. How did she ever know it was I? wrote the matter-of-fact Halliburton to me. 27. Alice wants to know if Mr. Halliburton will not send here for some rags. Says we have plenty, with little need for clothes. And then the despatches began to be more serious again. Brannan and Orkut had failed in the great scheme for the longitude, to which they had sacrificed their lives. If, indeed, it were a sacrifice to retire with those they love best to a world of their own, but nonetheless, they did devote themselves with the rare power of observation they had to the benefit of our world. Thus, in 28, your North Pole is an open ocean. It was black, which we think means water, from August 1st to September 29th. Your South Pole is on an island bigger than New Holland. Your Antarctic continent Is a great cluster of islands. 29. Your Nyanzas are only two of a large group of African lakes. The green of Africa, where there is no water, is wonderful at our distance. 30. We have not the last numbers of foul play. Tell us, in a word or two, how they got home. We can see what we suppose their island was. 31. We should like to know who proved right in He knew he was right. This was a good night's work, as they were then telegraphing. As soon as it cleared, Halliburton displayed Best Hopes Carrier Ducks This was Halliburton's masterpiece. He had no room for more, however and was obliged to reserve for the next day his answer to number 31, which was simply, She. A real equinotical now parted us for nearly a week, and at the end of that time, they were so low in our horizon that we could not make out their signals. We and they were obliged to wait till they had passed through two-thirds of their month before we could communicate again. I used the time in speeding to number 9. We got a few carpenters together and arranged on the flat two long movable black platforms which ran in and out on railroad wheels on tracks from undergreen platforms so that we could display one or both as we chose and then withdraw them. With this apparatus we could give 45 signals a minute corresponding to the line and dot of the telegraph and thus could compass some 20 letters in that time, and make out perhaps 250 words in an hour. Halliburton thought that, with some improvements, he could send one of Mr. Buchanan's messages up in 37 working nights. Well, they're all okay. Aren't you happy? I have a few thoughts that I want to share on this episode. However, I'm going to forego telling you them uh not because i don't want to i actually really do but i think i'm not exactly sure how i'm going to like what the format is going to be for each episode i've thought about just doing all the commentary at the end and i've also you know done it after each episode i think some people like the banter uh i think other people might just want to hear the story i'd like to know what you guys think so let me know tweet me at Wet Josh, W E T J O S H. Don't worry though, I will tell you my thoughts on this episode after the next episode, which will be the final for The Brick Moon, part four. Uh, Last thing I want to do is give a shout out to my buddy Stephen Gower. Uh, He also has a podcast about books. It's called The Slow Reader. You can look it up on iTunes, and I think he's also on other things um, like Stitcher and whatnot. Uh, he sh- gave me a shout out on his most recent episode, so I wanted to return him the favor. His, ep- his podcast is actually kind of, um, in some ways different, but other ways, very similar to science fiction shorts in that a, he reads science fiction. However, his books are current and different in that he doesn't read you the actual book. <laughs> uh, but it's a great way to catch up on, um, books that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have time to read. So Thanks, Stephen, for the shout out. Well, we'll finish it up next week with part four of The Brick Moon.